to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that as we move through John's Gospel, John, chapter 5, begins another subsection. The first section of John's Gospel, chapters 1 through 12, chronicle Jesus' public ministry. Three or four years as Jesus is out ministering in public. And in chapter 5, the, the ministry of Jesus begins to center around, to be ordered by, in the flow of the text, Jewish feasts. Four of them will be recorded. We're now leaving what's called the Cana cycle. Cana in Galilee is what bookends chapters 2 to 4. And now starting in 5, the action will largely be in and around Jerusalem, not exclusively, but largely, and largely around the Jewish feasting system. Um, the other notable element starting in chapter 5 is the opposition to Jesus and his ministry begins to rise here. Up until this point, um, the only opposition we've seen is that when Jesus cleansed the temple in chapter 2, the Jews demanded a sign saying, what, what sign do you do to uh, verify these things? And they scoff at his answer, but that's hardly the opposition that will be coming. And yet by the end of this morning's passage, the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus. So Jesus will go from someone who raised some controversy back in chapter 2 to someone the Jews are actively seeking to kill based solely on this text this morning. Things escalate here significantly. Um, and it's because in this passage, John 5, 1-18, Jesus insists on his equality with God. He insists on his equality with God. I'd like to begin by reading the first 18 verses, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll start working through this. John chapter 5, 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and that unlike the Jews who stumble, who hate this truth, that we would rejoice, that we would come to know and understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is your equal. He is fully God. Um, and that we would receive him as such, that we would behold his glory in your word. Lord God, I pray that you would um, grant us the faith to believe that he is not just a good man, not just a prophet, but very God of very God in human flesh. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The Gospels record many miracles of Jesus, and the Gospels will frame them and highlight certain realities in them. Um, we, we spent five years in the Gospel of Luke, so I'll draw from there. But in Luke's Gospel, you may remember, there, there are miracles purely of Jesus functioning, it would seem, just out of compassion. You remember the, the woman whose son had died, and Jesus encounters the, the funeral procession. And in Luke 7, Luke writes, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still, and he said to the young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And I love how Luke frames this. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And so here's a miracle in Luke's gospel, highlighting, framing just the compassionate love of our Savior. At other times, there are miracles in response to, to the faith of the one petitioning Jesus. And we think most notably of the centurion whose servant was sick. And Jesus marvels at his faith. And so the miracle is in response to the faith of someone else. Similarly, there are miracles that Jesus does to prove his claims. In Luke 5, the, the friends of the paralyzed man lower him down through the roof. And when Jesus sees their faith, he says to the man, I, your sins are forgiven. And then only because the Jews were grumbling, saying, who does this man think he is? We read that Jesus says to them in Luke 5, 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So sometimes Jesus works miracles, and the primary motivating force is just pure compassion. And other times, it's miracles in response to the faith, the persistence of others. And other times, he works miracles to prove, to validate his claims. The miracle in John 5, I think, follows a different pattern. I would suggest to you that the miracle done in 5 and everything around it serves one primary point. Jesus is trying to provoke, trying to instigate confrontation and controversy. He is trying, to use the vernacular, to pick a fight with the Jews in Jerusalem. It's, it's undeniable. I think by the time you see this morning, that is what he is doing here. Um, the man and everything about him serve solely to promote this function. Jesus is instigating conflict. It's one of the remarkable things about John's presentation of Jesus. He, he doesn't always fit our expectations. We, we live in a day where everyone's being told you want to be winsome. You want to be winsome. And here's Jesus picking a fight. And so apparently there are times when love and truth create conflict, provoke controversy. There are times where he doesn't. This isn't the only way Jesus acts. 
Uh, I'm not saying we should always go around constantly be trying to create. Some of you will hear that too much and say amen. The, the point is Jesus knows what's appropriate. He is God in the flesh. He is perfect. And he knows when it's time to escalate. And he knows when it's time to, we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, move away from Jerusalem to de-escalate. We see him be gentle and humble, following and pursuing doggedly the woman at the well, bringing her to faith. But here, make no mistake, our Lord instigates a confrontation and takes the Jews of Jerusalem from purely questioning him to seeking to kill him. Let's, let's look at this in three points. Point one, Jesus creates a controversy by healing on the Sabbath. Jesus creates a controversy by healing on the Sabbath. Now, after all of chapter four, in one sense, was a travel journey to get to Galilee. He gets to Galilee, and you remember, and there's a link here, the nobleman wanted Jesus to do what? To come down. Come down to Capernaum. And Jesus heals the man's son from a distance. He speaks. And then, instead of going down to Capernaum, we read in 5.1, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a hill. So even though it's in the south of the land, you're always going up. Those are the Psalms of ascents as you ascend the hill of the Lord. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John doesn't name the feast. Um, we, we don't know what feast it is. Now, I'm suggesting, I think it's likely it's one of the three feasts that Jews are obligated to go up to. It's not certain, but Jesus previously has been avoiding Jerusalem, and now he goes up. It, it may not be, but Jesus goes up to Jerusalem where he had first gained notoriety, where he had first gained notoriety. What I believe John is doing here in 5 is adding some clarity, coming back around to something enigmatic that he said at the end of chapter 2, something strange that he said at the end of chapter 2. Turn to the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, we've looked at this. I've pointed this out repeatedly because I think John has intentionally set this up. He's posed questions that are unresolved in our minds. And one of them is why does Jesus respond to faith, something John can call faith, the way he does at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And I suggested when we read that, that we're supposed to scratch our heads and go, what's going on? What gives? And I think he puts forward Nicodemus as a first example to help explain how someone could see signs and be impressed by those signs and draw certain right conclusions like Nicodemus, teacher, we know you're from God, for no one can work the signs that you do unless God is with him. And yet that's woefully insufficient. And Jesus challenges Nicodemus and challenges his self-righteousness challenges his assumption of his own spiritual ability. Well, here, Jesus will work another miracle in Jerusalem. And we will see why it is that the faith of the Jews in Jerusalem who's, who believed in his name and they saw the signs, why that faith is lacking. We'll see what they do here. We'll have a better explanation of why it is Jesus is not impressed with a faith that at the end of chapter 4 Verse um, 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's part of the linking thought here. We're getting a further explanation. What is it that's bad? What is it that's insufficient? What is it that's lacking in a faith that requires signs? We're going to see that here. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem where he had first gained notoriety. 
and I would suggest possibly an observance to the law. I only want to highlight that because if Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem because of the law of Moses requiring all able-bodied males to go up for three feasts, then against the charge of being a lawbreaker, which is what's going to be put at his feet later, we see him actually observing the law. Can't, can't be certain about that, but seems likely to me. And Jesus is in Jerusalem. We don't know what the feast is, presumably because that feast is unimportant. It just lets us know Jerusalem would be packed with people. It'd be full of people. And Jesus is there, and he's at this pool in Bethesda. And John gives us the details about the pool. Some of your Bibles may even have some extra phrases in there to explain. I just want to zero in on the action of what happens. Jesus selects a man at the pool and asks him if he wants to be healed. Jesus asks a layman if he wants to be healed. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked, now the day was the Sabbath. So, First point, Jesus selected him from many at the pool. There are times in the Gospels where Jesus just heals everybody. In Luke's Gospel, they'd bring him and go town by town and heal all of their sick. Jesus only heals one man here. It's one of the reasons why I think the sole purpose or the primary purpose of this miracle is to provoke the conflict. We're told this, this place is littered with sick people, yet Jesus only heals one man. And we're told that Jesus selected him, chose him, knowing he'd been there a long time, suggesting that, as I would suggest, that Jesus' purpose in choosing him is to pick someone notoriously lame so that no one could argue it was a plant, it was fake. He picks someone presumably well-known to everyone for being lame. 38 years this man has been lame. So, So he picks someone to heal who is going to, be hard to deny as a real miracle. And then he asks the man if he wants to be healed. Now the second thing I want you to notice is this. The man evidences no knowledge of or faith in Jesus. No knowledge of or faith in Jesus. So the scene is this. Jesus is by the pool. Here's this man. The the whole courtyard's littered with lame people. Jesus asks him, would you like to be healed? Now, presumably, this man has no knowledge of who Jesus is because if he did know who Jesus was, we'd assume he'd he'd ask Jesus to heal him, or at least he'd understand that Jesus is offering to heal him. But he doesn't pick up on any of this. He just says, um, what does he say? Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool and the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, Another steps down before me. In other words, his sole hope and focus for healing is not in Jesus, but on getting to that pool before the, when the water is stirred. Presumably, um, the invalid apparently held to a popular belief that the first person into the pool after the water is disturbed, and only the first person, would be miraculously healed. So here he is. His focus is on this superstition. The water is stirred, and I can get in there first, so I'll get healed. Here is the author of life, 
the Son of God talking to him, would you like to be healed? And he's still focused on this pool. He's, he's oblivious. He's, he's just ignorant. It's not, it's not corrupt. He's just, he doesn't know who Jesus is. My point is, what, what follows is not about this man's faith in Jesus. As far as I can tell, nothing in the text suggests he ever comes to faith in Jesus. That, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not responding to his faith. Jesus asks him the question. The man gives his answer. Then Jesus heals the man. Jesus heals the man. The man evidenced no knowledge of or faith in Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, three things, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And again, similar to the miracle at the end of chapter 4, no prayer, no convocation, no ritual. He just speaks, and reality conforms to his will. A man who had been lame for 38 years gets up and doesn't get up sort of slowly and tentatively. Part of, part of the point of him picking up his bed is to show the strength he has. He, he's able to walk, and he's walking, and he's able to carry some weight. And so Jesus tells him to take up his bed and walk. Now, part of that is also in telling him to take up his bed is to create the conflict. That's going to be what the Jews zero in on. So Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And the man does. The man does. No ritual or prayer, only the power of his word. Only the power of his word. Now, the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 5, after these first 18 verses, is Jesus speaking about, explaining, defending what he says, and unpacking his claim. And he'll highlight the power of his word. Just notice in verse um, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Down in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus will unpack the significance of the power of his word. Here he's demonstrating it. Here is one whose word is utterly powerful. He speaks. And reality conforms to his words. He tells a man who's been lame 38 years to get up and walk, and the man instantly gets up, immediately. And he's not tenuous and weak, intrepid. He's carrying his bed and walking around. A, a miracle of seismic proportions. In fact, turn to Isaiah 61. This is one of the miracles that's clearly messianic in nature. In Isaiah 61... Um, we, we know this from Luke. This is one of the passages Jesus likes to use to point to himself. We read, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken harbor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn. And elsewhere in Isaiah, in Isaiah, um, we read about how the lame are leaping. Remember when John the Baptist is arrested and he sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we look to another? Jesus points to precisely these types of miracles, these healing miracles to validate his messianic claim. And my point is Jesus works a miracle and it's a miracle that the Old Testament links directly as the works the Messiah would do when he comes. 
So Jesus is back in Jerusalem where many had believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And here he does another notable, remarkable sign. He heals a man notoriously lame, well-known presumably to be lame. And he heals him in a full, profound, jaw-dropping sense. What will happen? What will the Jews in Jerusalem say or do? Well, we will find out here. Um, The Jews persecute Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. That's what they do. There's your first answer for why the faith was generated from seeing his signs was something Jesus didn't entrust himself to. That faith is very fickle. That faith is very fickle. The Jews persecute him. We get two summary statements in this passage. You see one of them in verse 16. This is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then in verse 18, And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So what's the result of this healing, of this miraculous power demonstrated? They're persecuting Jesus. That's the result. So let's see how we get to there. First, the Jews rebuke the man for breaking the Sabbath. The Jews rebuke the man for breaking the Sabbath. The Jews said to the man, let's pause, Jews. Likely Jewish leaders in John's gospel, Jews frequently means something more definite than simply a Jewish person. In, in later in, in chapter 12, there are people in Jerusalem who are quiet about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Now, presumably, they're all Jewish. So frequently when John uses the Jews, especially in a negative sense like this, he means something like the, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Jews opposed to Jesus, something like that. The Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is a Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed which is remarkable. Do they rejoice in a mighty work being done? Do they rejoice with this man who after 38 years lying on the ground, hoping to get into a pool, is now walking full of strength and vigor? Do they praise God that a thing has been done? No, they immediately jump to, hold on, you're breaking the Sabbath. Which raises the question, is that a valid charge? Because on the one hand, I don't want to suggest to you that it's okay to disobey God as long as something great's happening. But that's, that's not what's going on here. The Sabbath command was against work, doing work on the Sabbath. And so what we can infer from this is, presumably, the Jews thought carrying a bedroll was work. That seems a bit of a stretch, as if this man's going to earn a couple extra pieces of silver as a professional bed carrier. Unlikely, in my view. And, and we know the Jews, and the Pharisees in particular, really wanted to be cautious with these things. And they, they'd figured out just how far can you walk on the Sabbath. Well, they, they had an answer for you. That is Sabbath day's journey. And in part, we can sympathize with that because breaking the Sabbath was a death penalty offense. Understand, they're charging this guy or suggesting this guy is doing something worthy of death. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Exodus 31, 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So this is no trifling charge. But is he, in fact, breaking the Sabbath? I I don't think he is. I don't think he is at all. I don't think Jesus has commanded this man to break the law. What he's doing is getting dangerously close to their lines they drawn. And you can sympathize. If breaking the Sabbath is a death penalty offense and you are parents, you'd probably want to set some safe guidelines to make sure your kids didn't accidentally do any work. 
and you'd probably be overly cautious. I mean, th that's the way legalism can start out, and it can be a fine thing. You've got your own little guidelines. We're just to make sure we don't do work. We're not going to walk further than this. We're not going to lift weights heavier than that. That's fine, and that's safe. And then you start saying, that's good for me and my household, and it's good for you guys too. And then you start accusing and condemning people because they're breaking your guidelines. That's how this stuff happens and starts. So the man is carrying his bed mat. He's just been healed of a lifelong affliction. And they're upset because he's, you might be working. And so that's where they go to. They rebuke him for breaking the Sabbath. Now the man in turn blames Jesus. In contrast to this, if you, when we get to chapter nine, we'll see the man who was born blind defending Jesus and growing in his faith. Here, the man just passes the buck on to Jesus. And he says, well, the man, the man who healed me told me to pick up my bed. He's just talked to him. I'm just doing what I was told to do by the guy who healed me. Notice he doesn't even know Jesus' name. Again, this is not a story about a man who has faith. He doesn't even bother to find out who it was who healed him. He exists to create this controversy. He was chosen to create this controversy. And his function in the story is to move the plot along to create this controversy. Whether or not he comes to faith in Jesus, whether or not once he finds out who Jesus we don't know. But at this point in time, there's nothing about this man. He doesn't even know who it is who's healed him. So then to move the plot along, Jesus finds the man and warns him to sin no more. It's remarkable. Jesus finds the man. In verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know it was Jesus, for he had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Which suggests this man's affliction is actually a result of his own sin. Jesus finds him and says to him, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. There's, there's two errors we can make, and John's going to deal with both of them here and then in 9. One error is to think that every bad thing that happens to you is a result of sin. Jesus corrects that in chapter 9. When they get to the man born blind and his disciples say, well, was it the man's sin in utero or was it the parent's sin? And Jesus says, no, it was neither. But the other error we can make is to think, therefore, never is it the case that physical affliction is a result of sin. But Scripture tells us better. Psalm 32, David recognizes and speaks to his own body wasting away when he didn't confess his sin or probably more striking still, 1 Corinthians 11.29, Paul warns the church, and he would warn us that if you or I take communion in an unworthy way, the Lord might kill us. That's what he says. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Or just think of Ananias and Sapphira. No, there are times, not always, but there are times when God judges our sin with physical affliction or even death. And Jesus is suggesting this may be one of those cases. Stop sinning. He calls the man to repentance. Or something worse will happen to you. But more to the point for our, our pur purpose of this conflict, it now gives the man Jesus' name. And so the man then turns right around and reports Jesus to the Jews. So now he knows his name. And he goes and he tells them it was Jesus who healed me. And then we get our first summary statement. What do the Jews in Jerusalem who saw the signs Jesus did, what, are they, what is lacking about their faith? Well, 
Their response to hearing that Jesus healed this man, knowing it's Jesus now. Okay, it was Jesus who did this. Okay, now they're going to persecute Jesus. That's what, that's what John says. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Remarkable. Remarkable. Now we're starting to get a fuller answer for why Jesus acted the way he did at the end of chapter 2. But this just gets the, the ball on the tee. I think that's a sports analogy, right? And the ball's on the tee. It's just there to be hit easily. Because what Jesus is about to say is the equivalent of detonating a nuclear bomb. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Jesus here escalates things by claiming equality with God. This just gets things to the point where he can then say what he wanted to say, make the point he wanted to make, and elicit the response he knew he would elicit. And it's absolutely stunning. It's just one short verse, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And then John tells us what that means, lest we misunderstand, and what the consequence of him saying this one sentence is. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we, we think of father and uh, calling someone your father, and we think of genetic testing and NCSI and those shows. The, the Jewish thought is fundamentally fu functional fatherhood. We, we have the expression like father, like son. In, in the Gospels, Jesus is called the carpenter's son. In other places, he's called the carpenter. And as he will explain to us, starting in verse 19, that's how he's using the term. And he does mean full equality with God. Jesus is insisting he's God's equal. Look, look at what he says. We'll pick this up next week, but look at 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And as Jesus goes forward, he makes it clear he means whatever. Judging the living and the dead, check, Jesus does that. Granting eternal life, check, Jesus does that. Judgment, Jesus does that. So Jesus means absolutely, I do whatever I see my Father doing. And that's the point he's going to make. But this is a stunning claim. And, and the reason why I say it's escalation is turn, turn over to chapter 7. Jesus could have answered the charge of Sabbath breaking another way. In other words, this isn't the only answer he could have given. He gives a very different answer to the same issue in chapter 7. Turn over to 7.21. He's, it's the Feast of Booths. He's back in Jerusalem. He's preaching and teaching. There's controversy. And in verse 21, Jesus said to them, speaking of this very miracle, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? So get the argument he's making here. In chapter 7, he says to the Jews, look, you guys recognize in the law that sometimes the, the eighth day, the day for circumcision, is on a Sabbath. 
And when that happens, you go ahead and you circumcise the child. The law recognizes within it there are some things that are lawful to do even on the Sabbath. If you can recognize that, can you really say, I'm breaking the Sabbath when I heal a man's whole body? In other words, Jesus' argument here is, I'm not actually breaking the Sabbath. Right? That's the argument he's making, which is why he tells him in verse 24, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is not, in fact, breaking the Sabbath here. The answer he gives the Jews in five is, so what if I am? My father, get this, you're, you're doing this on the Sabbath. Guys, my dad works on the Sabbath, so, so do I. That's <laughs> it's a jaw-dropping claim. He's claiming divine prerogative. If God does it, in other words, then I do it. That is a huge claim, and they don't miss it. They, they get it, and then they want to kill him. This is the claim that drives Jesus to the cross. So understand, this escalation is chosen by Jesus. He chooses the man. He chooses a Sabbath day to do this. He makes sure to tell the man to pick up his mat. When the mat is confronted by the Jews, Jesus shows up again to make sure he knows his name. The man goes back to the Jews. The Jews try to persecute Jesus, and then he can lay out and insist upon his equality with God. That, that this is orchestrated by our Lord to set up his explanation that follows. This is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why pick a fight? Why orchestrate conflict? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons. One, Jesus has no interest in faith and followers and disciples who receive him as anything other than he is. Um, it's, it's popular today for people to think of Jesus as a good teacher, a wise prophet, got a great ethic, he's a great example, and Jesus says, no, I'm equal with God. And if that offends you, so be it. That's what Jesus says. He insists. There's, there's, no, there's no compromise on his identity and who you must receive him as. He, he orchestrates this to, to get that out loud and clear. He is claiming equality with God. It is understood they hate it. And it's his purpose to make that point clear. His purpose to make that point clear. It's also a kindness to them. We'll see the same thing in chapter 6. Jesus is going to have massive crowds following him, massive crowds. And he begins to teach some very difficult things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we read that many of his disciples turn and go back saying, this is a hard teaching. Who can hear it? But I would suggest to you that a person with fickle, fake faith is in a better situation if they realize I'm not actually a follower of Jesus. I'm actually offended by Jesus. They're closer to salvation there than self-deceived thinking they're followers of Jesus. So Jesus gets out the truth that's going to offend them, that they're going to stumble over so that they might recognize, actually, I, I hate him. I want to put him to death. And he does this as a way of fulfilling his ultimate mission. Why did he leave Sychar? The Samaritans received him? Be be because he came not to be welcomed and honored, but to be crucified. And Jesus is sovereignly in control of escalating the opposition. He is sovereignly in control of when his hour comes. It's not an accident when he's nailed to a tree. It's part of his plan. And he, even here, is orchestrating and coordinating when the opposition escalates and when it de-escalates. And this is a major moment of escalation. 
This is a major moment of escalation. Jesus' deity and his claim to deity is precisely why they nail him on the cross. That's the, the grounds they give. And in other, in other religions insisting on Jesus' deity today in Islam will have likely a similar response. And, and Jesus doesn't hide that, tuck that away to try to be winsome. He just comes out with it to let the chips fall where they may. This brings me then to how we will respond. Under, understand our Lord here makes a point of making this point. And he does it in a way that he will not be misunderstood. He works the miracle first because he knows the claim he's about to make is a mighty one. Perhaps these people could have reasons like the man born blind. Of How could he heal a man unless God is with him? And I, I, I get for a Jew, this is a huge claim to make. But Jesus will only be received as God, as divine, which then means that's how we have to receive him, right? So, so the closing claim for us before we sing our closing song, and we will sing it, is will you receive Jesus as God's equal and not just a moral instructor? Practically, that means will you worship him as God? Will you trust him and his word as God? Will you obey him as God? Jesus has no interest in just being your ethics advisor, your inspiration, your model for good living. He would be your God and your Savior. He would be your King and your ruler. Or he would have you understand you have no part in him, just as he does here. <laughs> My father works and I work. How do you like me now? And they want to kill him. They want to kill him. It's one of the things I love about Jesus. There's no bait and switch with him. There's no get them saved and we'll give them the hard teachings. He's right out front with the hard stuff. The sharp angles are right up front. It's one of the things I love about him. He's courageous. He's fearless. And here at the time and place of his choosing, he brings out truth that he knows will offend, but he also knows is absolutely essential if they are to be saved. And it's absolutely essential if we're going to be saved. Jesus has come to die for these people who now want to kill him. And he's come that those who would turn to him and trust in his death on the cross, trust in his sin-bearing, would be forgiven and saved. But he, he will only entrust himself to those who receive him as he is. And here the point is, he is God's very equal. Receive him as that. Let's close in order of prayer. I'll invite the worship team up. Lord God, how glorious is your son. How bold and fearless and courageous. Lord, help us not to be fearful or ashamed, but to exult in the one who is your very equal. Would, I, would that we would receive him as such, that we would honor him as God, that we would worship him as divine. We would cling to his word as the word of God, that he might receive the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.